Support for Rick Wilson's The Enemies List comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Wilson. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Wilson. Odoo. Modern management made simple. Resolute Square. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list, which was rather extensive and continually being updated. Democrats want Republicans dead. Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. No, it's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. (laughs) I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. So with me today on the enemies list is Doug Sosnick. Doug is a longtime political strategist. He served President Bill Clinton in what we think of as the the old days of peaceful bipartisan cooperation, <laughs> which which back then we thought it was the the hottest of hot wars, and now we realize we were all living in a in a cozy dream. Um, Doug, thank you so much for coming on the enemies list today. Uh, thank you, Rick. It's great to be here. Well, I want to start out talking about the current climate in D.C. Uh, because you're a longtime observer of this, and you, you've watched some of these dramas play out before. Uh, how do you think last week went in the shutdown politics of Washington and, and Kevin McCarthy's the, – the challenges that are facing McCarthy right now from the crazy wing of his party? Yeah, well, uh, well, first of all, I've been around a lot longer than you have. Uh, just to give you a frame of reference, I ran a congressional race in 1981. In 82. And, okay, I was still in high yeah. school. I agree. And, uh, <laughs> so I came to, so the, the guy I worked for uh, won. He beat the guy that had beaten him in 1980. So anyway, I came to Washington as a chief of staff in 1983. So my frame of reference goes back 40 years in terms of what, you know, how do you view what's going on today? Uh, I think the, um, uh, what we see today is, is uh, the sort of third, you know, into three decades worth of of trends that started in the early 1990s. Newt Gingrich and the, um, and the, the House Republicans in the mid-90s uh, begot uh, what we have today. In a sense, Matt Gass is a child uh, of, of, the, of the Newt Gingrich era of sure, quote, unquote, sure. burning down the House um, to save it. Uh, in terms of um, the activities last week, Mitch McConnell, I think, said it best, which is basically every time that Republicans have tried to shut the government down. Um, it's it's not worked. It's not worked either from a policy standpoint uh, or from a political standpoint. So, uh, you know, Clinton got reelected in 96 for a variety of reasons. But one of the, I would put one of the reasons at the top was the government shutdown that Gingrich and Dole mostly was driven by Gingrich and Dole was stuck being attached to Gingrich and had to go along. Um, they got nothing from a policy standpoint in terms of why they shut the government down. Uh, and it's like one of the factors, I think, that led to, to Clinton's reelection. And then 
in the uh, uh, sec- middle of the second term of Obama, the Republicans shut the government down uh, over Obamacare and got absolutely nothing uh, f- for doing that. Now, they did pick up a lot of seats and took back the House in 2014, uh, but I don't think it was because of the government shutdown. I think it was because of a second term, a midterm for a sitting president. And then lastly, of course, was Trump shut down uh, in 2018 over funding, additional funding for the, uh, the wall. Uh, that, so they got no funding additional, and they ended up losing control of the House uh, two years later. So I think um, this is a trend line, but I do think they've sort of set a, Republicans have set sort of a new bottom, and, and I don't think the Democrats are going to bail them out. Uh, they're not committed to governing, um, and you know basically clickbait and cable television has taken over the Republican Party. They're not a serious governing party anymore. You and I are both of an era where there, while, while there was plenty of spirited partisan competition and back and forth, there were still people who believed that jobs had to get done, things had to be done, things were responsible. Adults had to sit in a room and and operate the levers of government for the for the American people. And as someone, again, who's observed this since the Reagan revolution, basically, I'd love to get an outside Democratic perspective because I have my feelings on how the the Republican Party has mutated and changed. Tell me how how vast the the gulf is in your mind, how much the delta is that you can see from your career. The delta between what and what? Between the Republican Party when you came to Washington and the Republican Party of today. Well, uh, listen, we've had a political realignment in America and both parties are different now. You know, you could charitably say that the Republicans have become a working class party and their policy positions that they take are in line with that. I, I think the biggest problem, though, uh, is our incentive system in our country and our politics. And, you know, elected officials uh, may not show a lot of leadership, uh, but they do understand how to survive in their jobs. The incentive system right now is for both the left and the right to be more concerned about losing a primary than a general election. When I started politics in the 1980s, by the mid mid-80s, uh, over half the members in the Senate were of a different party than the presidential candidate who carried their state in the last presidential election. Now you only have five. You only have 23 congressional members of a different district than the candidate who carried their um, state uh, in the last uh, presidential election. So the political incentives really right now what I encourage what I call bad behavior from both the left and the right. Um, and, and the Republicans... Have, uh, have taken it uh, to an extreme uh, because essentially there is no party. It's all, you know, it's all brand building and it's all about getting on TV and getting press and generating, you know, it's it, what's nice, which, which, what is a nice thing about politics is that, that the, the bundlers and the, and the big, big money guys don't control anything anymore, um, which is good. Uh, the bad thing is that the money's in small donors and, the candidates from the left and the right that are able to energize small, energize the donors are the ones that take the most extreme positions within both parties. You see that negative incentive structure playing out because on the far right, you get people who say something outrageous. And when they get called on it, they run to Fox News and then they say to on their email fundraising, did you see me on Fox News? They tried to cancel me, but I'm doing this and that. And there is a certain degree of that on the left uh, to, to, you know, to their baseline audience. But yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the, the role of mega donors now is fundamentally altered. Yeah. You know, um, I just say one thing, taken from more of a meta view, as you hopefully can tell from this conversation, I'm, I'm not sort of part of the Hezbollah wing of the Democratic Party. And I 
I do, <laughs> I do believe there's plenty to go around. Um, but I think sure. to understand what's going I always tell people if you, if you are trying to understand the 2024 tree, you can't, the election, you really can't understand that tree if you don't understand the forest. And this is, these are really meta long term trends that have created the situation that we're in in our country. I tell people if there's one thing I can leave you with, it's that Donald Trump did not create these problems in our country. He is a reflection of what was going on in our country. A hundred years from now, when they're studying this period of time, they're not going to be focusing that much on Trump. They're going to be focusing on what was going on in America that enabled someone like Donald Trump to become president. And I believe that that we had sort of an unwritten pact between the parties following World War II, which is as long as we had two, two and a half, three percent GDP growth annually, which we did, that we basically agreed to not upset the apple cart. And then we could agree to disagree on whatever we wanted to disagree on. But after an election's over, we govern. But starting in the early 1970s, uh, you really began to see with the changing of the economy, the, the beginning of the decline of the middle class in America, which is a 50 year decline, which culminated with a realignment in the parties uh, during this 2016 presidential election, which was accelerated by the Trump presidency. Uh, and this created these enormous divisions in our country that transcended just a position on an issue. It was identity of who they are and which clan they're in and who they're against. Yeah, the, the who you oppose now in politics is and, and, and how far you're willing to be transgressive and ugly and always on the attack about your opponents is much more a product i think of the of the last 20 years i think you're right though absolutely right the middle class economic stressors that led to globalization and everything else you know helped drive some of the polarization on the left and the right but a lot of this also comes down to this sort of weird incentive structure of a pet media which is exists on both sides but is more developed on the right of a of a media just willing to tell them everything they want to hear and reinforce their values and their and their and their perceptions. When the Republicans played the impeachment games with Bill Clinton that they did, they paid a terrible political cost for it. Now, they're playing the same thing with Joe Biden uh, a second time around here on an even more flimsy and and sort of loose basis. They paid a terrible price for it in, in, the, in the 98 window. What do you think the outcome of this current impeachment situation is going to be logistically for the for the the impeachment itself and for the political impact of it on the Republicans and, and on the president. Yeah, so I'll just take a step back. I mean, basically, I think essentially the country is at 45, 45, 10, 45 Democrat, 45 Republican. I can talk to you if you want a little bit about the Trump-Biden race and you know, what the polling has been doing in a minute. That was that was okay, my next. So anyway, so you, gotta, you essentially have, you know, 45 percent of the country is what I call crazy right. And 45% is crazy left and 10% thinks the right and the left are both crazy. And what we are going through this, this, I don't want to go too high in the clouds here, but we're going through the biggest transition in our country since the late 1800s. We moved from an agrarian society to an industrial society. We're moving now, we have been for the last 50 years, away from a top-down manufacturing uh, economy to a 21st century digital and global one. So it, it takes 30 or 40 years. It's called a hinge moment. You think about a, a metal hinge on a door holding two pieces of wood together. So for the last, since the beginning of the century, 
uh, in 10 out of the last 12 election cycles, the public has voted against whoever's in power. Uh, and, and so you've had at least a, house, a chamber of the House or the Senate or the president change parties 10 out of the last 12 elections. So they're voting against whoever's in power. And it's that 10 percent of the people um, that think both parties are crazy that are voting against whoever is in power. Uh, because we're in this transition in our 20th century institutions, and I put politics and government at the top of that, are incapable of dealing with these 21st century problems. And so we saw this transition in the early 1900s. It took several decades, uh, and we're going through that now. Support for Rick Wilson's The Enemies List comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Wilson. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Wilson. Odoo. Modern management made simple. Yeah, and I think that transition is always a rough one. It's it's a rough one for people in politics who who do want to try to draw like historical consistency across decades because I think the amplitude and the frequency of changes in our society is getting more pronounced as we as we move into this era. Well, we're sorting through um you know, after World War II, the way you made a uh, a fortune in America was sell to the middle class. Um, now only a fool would sell to the middle class. You know, they asked Willie Sutton why he robs banks. He said, well, that's where the money is. And so increasingly we're a have and have not society. You know, people are seeing it every single day. If you just think about when you travel, about if you have money, you go through a different security line. If you have money, you get on the plane first. If you have money, when you get off, you get, you don't have to wait for your car. So every day, every, you know, 10 times a day, the people who are on the short end of the stick here are reminded that there are two rules in this country. And that's what's driving so much of the resentment um, that Trump is tapping into. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens. And that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com I mean, we're now basically in the third generation of that set of stressors on the middle class aspirational economy that existed from the 1960s where, you know, the promise of work hard, go to college, do well, you'll buy a house, you'll, you'll be able to have a house and kids and a family and, and a good life doesn't work for anybody anymore. Well, there's an overriding sense of one of two things about systems in America, big systems, big structures, 
one is they're either broken or the other is they're corrupt. You know, you're looking now at uh, millennials and Gen Zs who are the largest population group in America. They'll be the largest voting group by the end of the decade, particularly uh, younger millennials and all the Gen Zs. All they've seen in their adult life is, is you know, going to war on a lie. Uh, the 2008 economic crises, uh, no one went to jail. They saw what it did to their families. COVID has even made a bigger, I think, you know, cleavage between people who have money and people who don't. You look at who has who gets to go, who has to go to work and who does remote work. Um, so these are this is this is long festering um, um, alienation. Uh, and by the way, to be clear, you know, while the last four elections, the, the younger generation has voted over 60 percent for Democrats, uh, they're not Democrats. They just hate Republicans, but they're not aligned with Democrats. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. You know, we just came out of the field with a, a big research piece at Lincoln Democracy, our, our C4, and that is something that really popped out in the numbers was these young people do not associate with the Democratic Party. They just hate the Republicans. And, and if you look at the uh, polling done out of Harvard, I don't know if you've seen John Dell. Yes, I, I've, I've had John on the show. He's terrific. You know, there's more similarities than dissimilarities generationally on the Democratic side. But if you look at younger Republicans, 40 and younger, they don't have the same issues concerns or sets at the older. And so it's going to be a real page turner for the Republican Party when the generations flip. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that that the Republican Party had as a consistency for a long time was that there was a sort of internal education function for Republican voters and activists. And you grew up as I, at least, you know, the way I came up is, you know, you understood the three-legged stool of the party. You understood that, you know, foreign policy, social conservatism, and economic liberty were these three big things and people could articulate all of them. But that really has fallen apart for the younger generation of Republicans. It's true. And I just add one thing, and I'm, it's fairly rare on the Democratic side, I don't know about the Republican side, but I'm one of those guys that spent a lot of my life running campaigns and I spent a lot of my life uh, in government. And there's generally people don't don't split the two because the skill sets are different. But I can tell you, in government and trying to you know do the right thing and the right, it's a lot harder uh, than campaigns. There's nothing easier in a campaign than just saying a bunch of crazy stuff and uh, not having to pay any price for it and just figuring out how you win the cycle. Well, that's not how government works. Uh, no, it is not. And I've I've been inside government three times and outside the rest of my career. So probably eight years of the last 35 inside government, once at the federal level with uh, Bush 41, once at the state level in Florida, and once in New York as a senior advisor to the mayor for Rudy Giuliani when he was still somewhat semi-sane. And you're right. that That is something I think that people really have undervalued is is that governance is hard work. It's a real job. It takes grown-up adults doing um, serious things to sustain it, and it doesn't just happen magically. Ultimately, if you're an incumbent, 
if you're a chief executive, I mean, nobody knows what a congressman does. Nobody knows what a senator does. But if you're running a city or running a state, running the country, ultimately, the single best way to get reelected as an incumbent, as a chief executive, is two things. One is do a good job of governing, and the other is do an effective job of communicating what you've done uh, on behalf of the public. We learned in 94 with Clinton that we, we thought we did a great job of governing. But we did a lousy job of explaining our story to people. And, um, um, and we paid a price for it in 94. And then we learned that it's not good enough to just do a good job. You also have to communicate, which I think was one of the reasons Reagan was so effective, uh, because, you know, he did less than almost any president, but got more impact from it because he had a story to tell and it, and it, and it held together. There's a sort of sneer about Reagan with a lot of people, but he understood intrinsically that storytelling and narrative were always going to be a political asset above and beyond saying, here's our 600-page plan about X. He could go out and tell a story about it. And I think that's something that that Bill Clinton was very good at, especially in the as he – after 94, he got very good at that, sort of relating the things they were doing to people. So a New York Times reporter was telling me the story that he was in the Reagan White House interviewing Mike Deaver uh, right before the evening news. That's back in the days when the world stopped at 6.30 and you watched the evening news because that drove what the newspaper said the next day. So they sat in Reagan in uh, Deaver's office. I think he was the deputy chief of staff at the time. And they ran this piece of Reagan, which was devastating piece in terms of what they were talking about and this or that. So when it was over, the reporter didn't know what to say. So he finally said, Deaver, what'd you think of that? And uh, Deaver said, that was spectacular. And the reporter said, well, I don't understand. What do you mean? Uh, did you hear what they said? And Deaver laughed. He says, nobody listens to the words. All they do is look at the pictures. Those were spectacular pictures. The other story I'll tell you quickly was, so after the 94 midterms, after we'd done all this stuff, we thought for the American public and the Democrats had at the time, I think, the biggest route in the midterm elections uh, and since World War II and lost the House of Representatives for the first time since the 1950s. We did focus groups in Iowa to figure out what was wrong. And so we played speeches of Clinton. And Clinton said, in the old days, you, you, know, you got a job and you, and you stayed in the company for uh, forever and had the protection. And now the average person is going to change their job eight, eight times in their lives. And, and so if you aren't really aggressive and don't do training and all that, you're really going to be in trouble. Well, after doing focus groups, we changed the speech to say this is the greatest country in America. Your, your, your parents' generation, your father got a job out of college and was locked into that job for the rest of his life. Well, now you're going to change your j- jobs eight times. Now you have an unbelievable opportunity for where sky is the limit on the advancement. Uh, but you have to work hard to be able to achieve this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So the point is the narrative matters and the language matters. You know, Bill had a, a great speechwriter, a guy named David Kuznet, who used to – he wrote a little book called Speaking American. And it is it sits on one of my shelves near my desk. It is a ragged, dog-eared version. But that narrative turn that Clinton made, I think that was also one of the reasons he got through impeachment uh, paradoxically because he kept telling – you know, he kept telling American stories outside of his own. Well, listen, I want to ask you a little bit uh, about how you see the landscape of the current race in this – with the aforementioned mentioned sort of 45-45-10 division in the country. How do you see the landscape right now for the Biden-Trump race to come? I would say that we're in the most stable, unstable political environment I've ever seen. And, and the reason why I say that is um, there's been a kind of a stability in our politics, as I mentioned earlier, and it really started – 
uh, in the 2016 presidential election and then was on accelerant uh, in the after during and after the Trump presidency. And um, there's an old saying that all politics is local, but that's no longer the case. Now all politics is national. Uh, and even though we have 340 million people, there are only a handful of states that matter in determining the outcome of a presidential election and as well as control of the Senate. Um, so, you know, national polls don't matter anymore. It's only uh, really what's going on in, in, in probably uh, most six states. We've had since the beginning of the century, as I mentioned earlier, this kind of stability of alienation towards whoever's in power with the 45-45-10. So I give presentations all the time and uh, I have to update the polling because I can't stand in front of a group of people and show them a nine-month-old poll. But the fact of the matter is I could show them a nine-month-old poll and it's just as timely as it is today. Biden was getting between 56, 58 percent job approval uh, until the summer of 21. And you had a series of events happen in the summer of 21, starting with him basically declaring uh, victory over COVID on the South Lawn on the f- July 4th and how we're all going to go back to normal on Labor Day. We had the Afghanistan withdrawal, which we're all quite familiar with in August. Inflation in September rose above 6% for the first time and, and stayed that way for over a year. And we also had uh, supply chain backups begin in that September. So by the, by early November, probably even by October, basically what's happened with Trump has happened with Biden. There's a range of between 40 and 48% that both Biden and Trump can get. Uh, in the case of Trump, when he was talking about policy, the dirty little secret is a lot of Trump's policies were popular with the American public. And you'll see that on China and other issues, a lot of uh, positions that Trump took, um, Biden has not actually changed very much because he knows they're popular. So when Trump was talking about the issues that people care about, which which, which are uh, more popular than you would think, he was getting around 48 percent. And when he was being goofy and creepy, uh, then he'd get around 40 percent. And so in the case of Biden, we had a little three or four months ago uptick in consumer confidence. So he kind of edged up to 47, 48 percent favorable then things, you know, gas prices have gone back up now and he's down to around 40. So you're really in this range of this narrow band of these guys at around 45 or 46. Uh, over 70% of the country now has said we're in the wrong track now for two years. And so if you take a step back and look at all the data, um, uh, it's basically very stable. Now, what's interesting about a Trump-Biden rematch is the the reason that Trump is skating his way through the primary is due uh, to the support of the base of the party. Um, he's also running a much more sophisticated campaign. It's quite different for Democrats. The reason Biden has been able to avoid a serious primary is because of the elites in the Democratic Party. So whereas it was a grassroots movement for Trump, it's been an elite movement for Biden. And remember, I, I mean, I would say, look, as much as I dislike Trump, and I gather you may dislike him more, <laughs> if you put aside how contemptuous a person he is for a moment and just look at him as a political animal, uh, I don't think, I mean, he got elected president without a campaign. Uh, he didn't really have donors. He didn't even know what delegates were. He had no structure and organization. He, he took office owing fewer people um, than I think of any president ever elected. In the case of Biden, He's the first president since George H.W. Bush, who got elected in 1988, essentially for a Reagan third term. 
Biden is the first president since Bush in 88 to get elected without a political base. He doesn't have a political base. And if you look at both the exit polls of 2020, you look at the most recent NBC poll that just came out, the overwhelming reason that people give of why they're voting for Trump is because they're voting for Trump. If you look at the people who are voting for Biden, the majority of them are voting for Biden uh, uh, as a vote against Trump and not a vote for Biden. And in that same poll, they asked Democrats, you know, who do you, I basically a member of the Democratic Party, the Biden wing or, or somebody else. And, and the, the Warren Sanders vote was about the same number as Biden. It was really telling to me a couple of weeks ago when AOC and Bernie both endorsed Biden. And there was a sort of grumbling like, oh, they've sold out. They've gone. But I think you're right, though. It is it is an elite versus a sort of stochastic, noisy, weird base movement in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I, I'll tell you one thing, which I, I know for sure. We don't know each other. I know for sure you get this because I know for sure this is how you've done your life because I've seen it. I don't care about anything campaigns except three things. I want to define what the race is about. I want to define my candidate and I want to define the other candidate. That's all I care about. If I were descending from a trip to the moon and came back in America in the third week of October next year, I would probably just want to know two things. Tell me what's going on in like Arizona, Wisconsin, and Nevada. And the second thing I want to know is what's the campaign about? Now, if this is a referendum on the Biden presidency, uh, Trump's going to win. If this is a referendum on Trump, Biden's going to win. If this is a referendum of the Trump presidency versus the Biden presidency, uh, Trump might win that. And, and so the question is going to be, um, ultimately, what is the campaign about? Now, if you take, uh, uh, and I don't know for sure, but if you take that escalator ride down in, 95, uh, in 2015 that Trump made, since that escalator ride, he has been the dominant force field in American politics in which everything else revolves around. And I think that helps explain uh, why AOC and Sanders said what they said the other day. And by the way, there, so there was this conventional wisdom well, so go back to the primary. So primaries have this kind of chemical reaction that takes place that you never expect it, but it happens uh, at some point. And in 2020, there was a chemical reaction in the Democratic Party where there was like a 10-day period where it looked like if somebody didn't move and consolidate, Bernie Sanders is going to be the Democratic nominee. So the chemical reaction was to go to Biden. And the theory of the case at the time was uh, – only Biden could beat Trump. Now, as it turned out, that was probably accurate because Biden, 44,000 people in three states have voted differently. Trump would have gotten reelected. I don't see anyone in that field back then that could have beaten Trump. Now, well, here we are four years later. I did a survey back early in 20. And if it had been Bernie, I think Trump would have won 44 states. Yeah. You know, if you if you had a, if you did a redo in America politics today, based on everything we know today, Nixon would have beaten McGovern by more than what he won by in 72. Uh, and that was a, a landslide. So the question is going to be, what's the campaign about? I suspect it's going to be about Trump. And I, I don't, and I think the Trump support that is built in the primary through all of his travails, I think mask real vulnerability that he has in the general election. There's 20% of Republicans that don't like Trump. 
they were decisive in my people. You know, <laughs> so 20% is a lot in a narrow election in a handful of states. It is why Democrats swept the only these six states that told they're the only states that matter. It's where the balance of power is. Democrats won all the governorships in those states with lots of support from Republicans. They were Mitch McConnell said after the uh, 2022 midterms and why the Republicans lost the Senate. He said the, the first thing he said was it was Republican defectors. I think that it, that that what he's putting the country through is masking the fact that a majority of this country doesn't want to go back to crazy and worries about. What this guy, this guy, if he, if he wins, he knows what to do. Sadly, that is true. He knows exactly what to do. So the stakes couldn't be higher, but I wouldn't underestimate, particularly in those industrial states. And I thought when Bannon said this in 2016, he was crazy. He said, we're not worried about swing voters. We're worried about getting people out to vote who don't vote, who we know if they vote, they're going to support us. There are a lot of people, particularly in Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, skewing older, white, male non-college, who are outside the voting system. And so there is a lot of opportunity for uh, for Trump um, to pick up these voters if he can get them to vote. And the other thing is there are actually Biden 2020 voters who I think are open to Trump which I never would have thought. Not a lot, but again, in- not not. A lot. I think you're right. I think I worry about that, and I will tell you one of the one of the places Democrats should be thinking about that um, is with Hispanic men who are weirdly tweaking to the right. Well, not weirdly. They're doing it's a it's a long term cultural sort of thing. I think they should be keeping an eye on that and not presuming that African American men and Hispanic men are going to continue to behave uh, as Democratic voters automatically. Well, I think there's, yeah, I agree with that, but I think a couple things here. First of all, um, Hispanics traditionally are conservative culturally. And and secondly, you know, I didn't say it, but underlying all my thinking about everything I've been talking about is the fact that I think education now is is the, the great divider in American politics. You tell me the education profile of a community, I'll tell you how they're going to vote. And, and particularly with Hispanics, the, they aspire, and this, you saw this in the early last, beginning of the middle of the last century with Irish and Italians and other immigrants coming here, the more that people assimilate in this country generationally, the less they identify with their ethnicity and more they identify where they are uh, in in life. So Hispanics um, skew younger and younger people think both parties suck. Um, They they skew more working class. uh, And, you know, and particularly in a place like Nevada, Nevada is 44th in the level of education in this country. It's towards the bottom. It's one of the few states that are swing states that aren't in the middle of education levels. And, and you saw uh, uh, the voting for governor in, in Nevada in 2022 in the elected Republican. You saw Trump's increase in vote in 2020 there. I think that Trump can be very formidable in Nevada, uh, largely due to these working class Hispanics. I think African-Americans are different. I think the case there. Um, there's not as much of a potential for support, but nevertheless, Trump has already made some inroads. But older African-American voters are quite different than younger ones. And you've seen uh, the decline in the African-American vote in urban areas now is pronounced in 2020. Put, put aside Cornell West as a third party. Um, there's a real challenge and problem that Biden and Democrats are going to have in getting those people out to vote. And if you ask them how their life is now compared to three two years ago, most of the time, it's a lot worse. 
Well, Doug Sosnick, I want to thank you so much for coming on the enemies list today. That was a great interview, and I really appreciate your time. Uh, We look forward to having you back on the show as the election moves on, because we're going to be talking about it a lot. Hey, on the list today, the enemies list features Republican mega donors. Why are Republican mega donors on the enemies list today? Well, I will tell you why. The great frenzy among Republican money people right now is to flood the zone and to get Glenn Youngkin in the race, the hero that will save America from Donald Trump. Listen, guys, I get it. You're all billionaires and multimillionaires, and really money doesn't matter to you at a certain level. This is sort of play money for you at a certain level. But those of you who hate Trump, and most of you do, most of you hate Trump. I know it. I've talked to you people about it. I've talked to many of the people that have funded Ron DeSantis. I've talked to many of the people that will be funding this ridiculous Glenn Youngkin primary idea. And they all hate Trump. They hate him so much. They hate him aesthetically. They hate him culturally. They hate him politically. They hate his vulgarity. They hate the fact that he's a faker. They hate everything about him. But they're desperately afraid of losing their tax cuts or losing their oil and gas tax benefits and all this other stuff. Okay. But you guys need to understand something. The way to beat Trump is the general election. The way to beat Trump is in November of next year. You will not get what you want from a Nikki Haley or a Tim Scott who is too busy with his Canadian girlfriend who's not on social media. You've never met her. She's a supermodel. You will never get what you want out of these people. Glenn Youngkin is poison to MAGA voters when Trump is still in the race. Unless Trump is dead, a guy like Ron DeSantis or Glenn Youngkin is never going to be able to capture their hearts. So what you're going to do is go out and burn another, I don't know, half a billion dollars to the ground um, between now and the end of the primaries, trying to get Glenn, Glenn Youngkin, Glenn fucking Youngkin. Come on, people. You're going to try to get a guy like Glenn Youngkin over the line with MAGA crazy people when Trump is in the mid to high 50s with Republican voters in most early primary states? I know you guys are rich, but but I didn't think you were dumb. This is dumb money. This is bad, dumb money. Invest in GameStop if this is what you're going to do. Anyway, but until then, you're on the enemies list. Thanks again for listening to The Enemies List. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at the Rick Wilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.